You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 19th of June 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. It is not enough to merely have an American presence in space. We must have American dominance in space. So important. He's going to want to design the uniforms, isn't he? U.S. President Donald Trump announces the creation of Space Force. My guests Florence Biedemann and Robert Fox will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the EU's new idea or revival of an old idea for managing migrant inflows. If it was going to work, wouldn't they have done it? Germany's reckoning with the political mortality of their chancellor and... The Trump administration is really attacking the press for making mistakes. So if there's any time when you want to make sure that the small mistakes that people will try to use against us don't get made. That's kind of the peril right now. Does the New York Times deserve the flattery it receives, not least from itself? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Florence Biedemann, AFP London Bureau Chief, and Robert Fox, Defence Editor for the Evening Standard. Welcome both. And we start with the ongoing struggles of Europe's leaders to reconcile the fact that large numbers of people from outside the continent are continuing to seek new lives here, while large numbers of the people who are already here and who vote would prefer it for one reason or another if they didn't. European Council President Donald Tusk has now suggested, or rather refloated, for the idea is not a new one, the establishment of centres outside the EU where officials could sort refugees in need of protection from economic migrants seeking betterment of their own circumstances. Um, Florence, it strikes me that the, well, the most obvious problem with this is that the economic migrants or the illegal migrants would probably not actually go to any of these places, would they? Yeah, plus how do you organize in, in a few hours or in a few days who is an economic or a political migrant? I mean, it's a long process, so it's kind of a tricky one. Plus, you really wonder which country will, will accept like this kind of uh, sorting camp. Like, uh, there were some names like Tunisia, Albania. Uh, I guess you would have to, to receive money to accept that kind of uh, camp on your territory, which is... a. <laughs> another issue. Well, they would assuredly want money or in the cases of, I guess, countries like Albania or other EU candidate Mm. nations, they might see that as a way to shore up their credentials. But uh, Robert, the money thing is the problem there, isn't it? Who is actually going to pay for any of this? It's money, it's enforcement, it's surveillance, it's open door. We have had this in the past. Famously, we had it in your country, Australia, with... um, Abbott and his well, the, uh, uh, Abbott and before him, of course, it was John Howard's scheme. Sorry, rather the, to, the, to, the, a regime which is still in operation. But I mean, which but is, it's much smaller numbers, by the way, than the ones we're talking about here. Much, much uh, but, smaller, but, and also Australia does not have a land border with anybody. But um, a Europe, um, the, 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 sorry, the most suitable analogy, I think, is what Berlusconi tried to do with Gaddafi. Famously, he bribed him with about. Uh, 8 billion euros to set up camps when things were getting under pressure, when Gaddafi was still a force in the land. Subsequently, we have seen um, trying to pay Danegeld, as it were, to Turkey to keep refugees out. I think that uh, what is so worrying, looking at Europe, looking at the way um, this has driven nativist policies, uh, um, uh, politics, rather, particularly in my own country, Brexit as well, is that 
they're looking at short-term solutions to what is going to be an enduring condition. And it's how you go about that enduring condition. Of course, the most interesting and the most vivid pressure at the moment is coming from Africa. A lot of the rest of the world isn't interested in that, but the figures are potentially staggering, considering when one sees that as the um, African population expands so much. So much migration in Africa is within Africa at Indeed the moment. Indeed so. About 90%. What I'm saying is, that is, is, is cold comfort. I, I think that this thing will be tabled. The Italians are actually backing it as well for very obvious reasons. I don't think it stands a prayer of working. Uh, Florence, the issue that Robert points out there is a common one, especially in in in, in democracies, that that politicians think in the short term about problems which are often long term ones. But if you're thinking as a short term European politician trying to stay in office until this time next election, whatever their own inclinations, are European governments, even the most liberal ones or the ones that have the most sort of generous ideas about immigration, realising that they have to choose between either taking a harder line themselves or basically giving the country up to anti-immigrant populists? I think uh, it's already done. I think there is not one regime now in Europe uh, that is really uh, liberal and uh, has a liberal policy of uh, welcoming the migrant. I, I wouldn't be that sure that they are not thinking longer term because there are also some other solutions that have been suggested. But of course, the, the, the realization will be over years, like like helping some countries, like trying to intervene in Libya and have also some camps in Libya. I mean, things that are longer term or like Macron, French president, said, developing African country. But of course, I mean, this this is so long term that uh, the voters, as you say, and the citizens are not happy with, with that kind of answer, but still they exist, uh, although they are much more difficult and uh, less spectacular uh, to, to implement. I mean, Robert, that is the obvious, well, that's the ideal solution, isn't it, is would be to help create conditions in the countries that people leave from that improve those countries so people don't want to leave them in the first place. But given the current mood of European politic, polities rather, rather than politicians. If you were a European leader and you said to your people who are clearly hostile towards immigrants and foreigners, all right then, we're going to undertake a monumental Marshall-style plan to economically develop Africa, the Middle East and Central Asia, that is going to involve spending quite a lot of your money, you would be out of office in 15 minutes. Yeah, the, the, the figures go up and up. I remember when Italy was first hit in the 1980s with uh, with serious migration from uh, North Africa. Uh, the, one, of, one of the uh, stalwarts of Italian politics at that time, Rino Formica, did, proposed exactly that, the Marshall Plan for the Mediterranean, and he costed it in those days at about 30 billion, year, 30 billion um, dollars. That would be absolutely nothing. Now, just look at the colossal problem of the expansion and therefore the disruption um, plus effects of climate change, which uh, are likely to be to accelerate and exacerbate the issue with a country like Nigeria, the most numerous, the most powerful in some ways, the most disorganised, and the most likely to to break out break out north. I think that uh, I, I I do disagree here. I think that it does look like short termism at the moment because it's very difficult to conceive of 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 a regime. By that I mean uh, a, a subsidy program, a policy that 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 that, it, that 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 is going to be that is going to be an answer to this. It's very interesting that when you see this huge uh, surge in. Uh, population that's going to take place over the next 30 years, 
Most of it, more than half of it happens, well over half in nine countries alone. And out of those, five of them are Africa. Don't ask me to name them, but the two obvious ones are Egypt and and Nigeria. And the prospects are absolutely colossal. And when you look at the problem of trying to contain and give hope to uh, the refugee issue, say, in Jordan and, and, and Lebanon, which is acute, which is wicked at the moment, and it has no, it has no obvious solution. And then compared to the scale of what we're going to look at in, Europe, in, in, in Africa, sorry, that was a Freudian slip, Africa will be Europe's responsibility. Nobody else is interested in it. Um, Eurasia isn't interested in it. Certainly China, and, and uh, uh, except for very limited reasons, and, and India and America. So this really is the big one, and I think we're just at the beginning of it. Well, let's move along slightly. Uh, sticking with the migration issue and its effects on European politics, though. Uh, in 2015, Chancellor Angela Merkel of Germany, of course, effectively threw open the country's borders to the ragged queues crossing the continent from Syria, North Africa and Central Asia. Germany took in two million people in 2015 alone. Among the consequences have been the rise to unhappy prominence of the unsavoury nativist cranks of Alternative for Deutschland and in recent days a crisis which has threatened to bring Merkel's long term to a close as her interior minister Horst Seehofer has declared his intent to pull Germany's drawbridge up. Um, Florence, uh, what Seehofer wants to do, Seehofer, it's obviously important to remember, is not from uh, Merkel's own party. She's He's one of her coalition partners. I think we're using the word partners in increasingly inverted commas. Uh, he wants to refuse entry to Germany to migrants who have already registered elsewhere in the EU. Is there anything actually wrong with that? What is wrong is the whole system, I think, and uh, the EU countries are aware of that. The Dublin system, which means like if you refuse in a country, then you cannot go to another but the, the system was adopted like well before the migrant wave. So uh, everybody is, is aware it has to be changed. So now it's not that there is a rule of the game. And this is what uh, the EU country will really try to, to, to imagine uh, at their next summit. Uh, but again, yes, I mean, this migration problem has been the start of Merkel's problem of the change of conversation in the whole EU. Like since now the euro crisis is a bit behind, this has become the, the dominant and first problem and the consequences have been like seen not only in Germany with the rise of uh, rightist ideas, but also like in Italy and uh, as I say again, uh, in most of the European country. And they are all now closing their border. It's not that you, you ask whether there was still this question, do we accept people? I mean, everybody is refusing now. Uh, just to follow that up, though, um is Horst Seehofer, do we think, acting on, on sort of noble, high-minded principle, or is he daring Merkel to sack him and therefore force a political crisis which might actually bring her down? Well, I, I don't think it's in the CU, CSU interest, since they are a junior partner, to bring uh, Merkel's coalition down, because they will be out of the coalition. She could choose another coalition with the Green, whatever, it, it wouldn't last. So it, it's not in their interest. I think he's really acting with the same gold and all uh, all other eu politicians let's try to have a firm policy that will convince the people we are doing something and to try to to stop the the, the wave of xenophobia that has been uh, all over europe i mean robert are we beginning to get a sense here of what the next generation of european leadership might look like or if not that then at least what they're going to have to grapple with because again it's a bit like i think i was saying earlier whatever their own inclinations are they have to realize politically and if i figured this out i'm sure they have i can either take a harder line 
on immigration in a bid to try and let some of the poison out of the current discourse, or I am going to have to step aside and and leave the field to, well, in Germany's case, it would be alternative for Deutschland or, or folk of that ilk. I think we should go a little bit back to why Merkel did it, and she being the pastor's daughter, and it is, you know, part of her of her belief, of she's profoundly ethical. But um, she also saw that the demographic, uh, the demographic agony of the German people, that you know, the, the, the non-productive, the ratio of non-productive population, that is the very young, but particularly the very old to productive, was getting completely out of control. And she, uh, they thought that, you, you know, you would, we would get working migrants in. It, it has turned out to be a very bad political um, misjudgment. But this is what you've got, the, 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 um, the paradox of ageing Europe and yet the uh, neuralgia about absorbing uh, 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 migrants in large numbers from outside. Italy is acute because the economy is so disrupted there that, you know, that um, migrants uh, account for a lot of very casual, in very disgusting conditions, labour uh, south, of, south of Rome. And yet, south of uh, in the south, particularly in the Mezzogiorno, in the key category of eighteen to twenty-five or twenty-six-year-old, uh, it's a precise category of of youth employment. You've got up to 50, forty-six um, uh, percent unemployment, and it's it, it's a huge problem. We we saw this with the crisis over the Aurora boat. Um, which was very complicated. I think it was too complicated almost for the news media to handle because there was also this suspicion that you get from the Italians where they accuse uh, organised crime, which they know very well, shipping the migrants, colluding in a way... um, or playing on the innocence or the good intentions of the NGO boats. This is, as I said, I'm sorry to use the technical expression, it is a wicked problem. There seems to be no easy way uh, out of it, but it is a, a problem from Euro- for, uh, for, uh, for, uh, for Europe. And I think it's particularly interesting, uh, in my case, just looking at it as an observer of this country in the UK, is the way that Mrs May as well as the Brexiteers, really played on the uh, migration issue. But then you have well-known authorities like Paul Kennedy, a great uh, um, uh, writer on uh, a political seer, even as a historian, has pointed out in his great works that if you don't have migration, you start draining down the churn, the renovation of the of the international talent pool, and I fear that's what Europe is facing as well. It could be a toxic brew that we're going to get out of this. Uh, Florence Robert mentions Italy, of course, and one of the the straws in the wind we have seen from there recently, or in the last day or two, Matteo Salvini, the new Interior Minister, uh, is talking out loud about conducting a census uh, of Italy's Roma people and deporting those who turn out not to be Italian citizens. Uh, is this again an indication of the next generation? of European leadership. Is this something that any Europe, that any leader, and he is a leader, he's the Minister of the Interior of an extremely important European country, could have stood up and said this in public 10 years ago? Yeah, well, it's not the future generation, it's the present generation well, of leaders. So. 
Uh, and uh, yes, this is what you hear in France uh, from Front National. This is uh, uh, alternative for, for, for Germany. All, all, all these movements are progressing. I mean, this is what, what I find terrifying in Europe now. I mean, the conversation is only about migrants. There is a consensus that we should close the border, whoever we are. I mean, with different way of saying it, uh, more or less uh, uh, strong or direct. And uh, and this is the, the reality we are living. And you cannot get out of it because if you don't go towards some kind of uh, tough right, even when you are not a tough right leader, then you know your voters will uh, will sanction you and uh, and will punish you. So it's. Uh, uh, I'm afraid, yes, it's the present leadership and it's also the leadership probably for the years to come. Uh, that's what is really worrying. Very quickly, the League, the League has talked about this almost since its inception as the Lega Nord, but it, they've ne- they, they haven't had credibility behind it till now. That's the important point. The Roma is quite something else. They're, they're, they are a large population. Nobody wants them. It's an extraordinary case, but I'll tell you something. I think the authorities are going to find it jolly hard census, uh, running a census on them. That's the point. Italians don't know who are in their country now. That's what worries them most. But the fact that it is mentioned is really reminiscent of um, Nazism. Oh, yes, I agree with you so entirely. That's yeah, a word yeah. that should be said. So yeah. even if they don't do it, the fact that they express yeah. it is really... When you think of camps like Yasenovats, yes, it was the Roma as well as the Jews and the, and the, and the, and the communists who were put there. Yeah. Mm. Well, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Florence Biederman and Robert Fox. Coming up next, Donald Trump has been having ideas again. The Monocle Quality of Life Conference returns for a fourth year, and this time we're touching down in Zurich. Join Monocle's editors and a lineup of tack sharp panelists for lively debate, informed conversation, and top notch hospitality. Whether you're an architect, city maker, retailer, media mogul, or chef, pick up a ticket and be part of the debate on upping quality of life across the board. This year, there will also be a special focus on entrepreneurship and making it in a city. We'll be diving headlong into all Zurich has to offer, from fine food, Swiss wine, and river swims, to private tours of the best shops and ateliers. So why not join us from the 28th to the 30th of June? Find out more and book your ticket now at conference.monocle.com. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, still with me are Florence Biederman and Robert Fox. Now, anybody who has sat through enough pub quizzes knows that there are five branches of the US military, the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and the one that always catches people out, the Coast Guard. President Donald Trump believes this insufficient and has made known his desire for a sixth Space Force. He also declared that the US will return to the moon and that Americans will be sent to Mars. The latter, depending on which Americans get sent, is an idea with possibilities. Um, Robert, does the United States actually need a space force? Would we be laughing at this idea if another president had suggested it? Probably not, but the point is that quite sensible coves like uh, uh, General Jim Mattis or former General Jim Mattis, the Defence Secretary, said no, definitely not. And the one uh, the one service with a very big dog, uh, uh, galactic dog in the fight, is the Air Force, because they've done that up till now, and they said, we can take it on, and uh, space has been very much a part of our role. But there is a requirement. There is a space weapons or a weaponization of space race, and I don't think the Americans are going to win. 
Um, what do you think, Florence? Is there, and this is this is my own pet theory. This is this is just Donald Trump's weird uniform thing, isn't it? He he just, he just, he likes soldiers. He likes people with lots of gold braid and stars and parades mm. and parades. Well, I'm afraid he's not the only one <laughs> in the U.S. I mean, and uh, it's uh, doing him a favor to think like it's his idea and an original idea to 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 speak of a space force. I mean, uh, there is now kind of a competition between Russia, China, and the United. States for space dominance. So there is a justification to, to the idea, whether it's a good idea, whether it can be realized, uh, because probably if you create this kind of new department, you will need funding and you will need the agreement of the Congress. So all, all this has to be evaluated. But the idea itself is, is uh, I mean, is not uh, irrealist or, or, or lunatic. I mean, ask China and Russia the kind of program they are developing. And space is now really vital in, uh, in, uh, in defense. Uh, and strategic defense. So, in, in this sense, uh, he has got a point. I mean, Robert, you were talking there about the militarization of space, which is obviously a thing that has occurred to a certain extent. But how far off are we from from the actual weaponization of space? Of with air, with air, in that what the competition and it's the serious side that Trump has trumped it, of course, and put his own spin on it. Um, whoever does it, they're going to have to do it. It's the competition to control high space. You need to get your satellites higher and higher with the possibility to knock out other satellites. But what you're getting through the satellite uh, commerce, as it were, is that you're running weapons from it. The precision guided weapons in communications and things like GPS. And it's also, it's not only having your own capability, it is denying the capability of others to get at you. And that's why I said I do think there is weaponization of space taking place uh, already. Uh, the Americans quite clearly feel that they can't be left out of it. They probably are just marginally ahead. But given the investment programs and plans that we can see from China in particular, China China is probably going to be, that's why I said at the beginning, that America is unlikely to win this. And it looks as if China is set to be absolutely dominant within 30 years. There. And they will be, be running everything. They're running half our computers uh, anyway. And it is a very, very difficult prospect, particularly when you get things like uh, hypersonic weapons from high space now possibly being um, developed things like electric pulse weaponry coming along, which can knock out whole communications and the electricity system on, on a national scale in a matter of a, a, a few minutes or so. That it's where science fiction stops being fiction, and it, it, it's not just Captain Kirk. It is it, it, the, the, these um, these things become reality, and particularly with a paranoid conspectus of a personality like Trump, it could lead to the most dreadful. Um, Things that uh, that that that, um, that dominate our world. Interestingly, it's it, this has been an item at the land warfare discussion, the big uh, conference which takes place in London every year, which is currently on. Somebody pointed out, a former advisor to Obama, the only major army in the world that still manoeuvres and practices if all the satellites go down, if all the communication systems go, or if all the Wi-Fis and mobile phones and land phones go down, we can still do it. And guess what army that is? It's the People's Liberation Army of China. <laughs>
Um, just as a final thought on this one, uh, Florence, you we're talking there about the expense. The sums involved in this will, of course, be fabulous. Uh, but Donald Trump is talking about it as a, a an engine of driving the economy, a job creator, much as the original space program was. Is, is that a justifiable argument? Well, that's uh, an argument that will uh, please his voters, obviously, so it's more political. You think there's a lot of rocket scientists among the base, <laughs> do you? No, but a lot of people who hope they will get a job, America is great again, and this uh, president is fighting for our country. I think that's, uh, that's his, uh, his um, spin. Okay, well, finally tonight, the New York Times has rarely required much in the way of encouragement to regard itself as a bastion of journalistic excellence, so it is unsurprising that the Times agreed to participate in a new documentary by Showtime, chronicling 12 months in the life of the newspaper, specifically the first 12 months of the presidency of their most prominent nemesis, Donald Trump. The Fourth Estate, it is called. It's already airing on Showtime in the US. It will start in the UK this Sunday on the the 24th of June, that is, if I've read the calendar right, on BBC Two. Uh, Florence, will you be watching? Uh, probably, because uh, I took part in this show. <laughs> uh, if not, I'm not sure I would have. Like, okay, yes, or maybe because I'm a journalist, I would have to be interested. But yeah, I think I heard the, the, the word uh, autoglorification. I mean, sometimes, I mean, there are so many, so many movies or documentary exalting uh, the American mm. media. Uh, although sometimes after they, they could be also self, a bit more self-critical. So it, it shouldn't be my first topic of interest. But, but that being being said, I mean, you have to admire their, their courage, their professionalism. Uh, they, they are like fighting against a president who is trying and succeeding in delegitimizing de- uh, the press. Uh, because as much as they go after him, and I think they published like, last year a whole page of Trump lies, I mean, uh, in the end, it doesn't change nothing to, to what his voters think of him. Um, Robert, as, as, as Florence uh, alludes to there, the, the, there is a particular, how to put it, there's a particular culture around American newspapers. It's very different from the British one I've always found. I've written for a lot of British newspapers and some American ones. The American ones, in fairness to them, do pay a great deal better. But it's it's such hard work. They never really give you the impression that they're having a good time. It's awful writing for an American paper because they're very style conscious. You have to write in a particular way. They've done great things, but when they do great things, do boy, do they uh, <laughs> do they praise themselves up? And look, movies. Not we've just had the the New York Times, as you said. We've had the Washington Post. We've had the Boston Globe, as if nothing ever exists. And the very, I do like the artisan approach of the Brits with this. If the Brits know that we're, you know, the, who is the great uh, fictitious hero of British journalism? It's AJ. Make it up in private. <laughs> you know, or lunchtime obus or, or, or whatever. Uh, journalists are rascals or storytellers or whatever. It's There's not much irony in the self-congratulation of the American press, although they have done something. I do love Trump. He always refers to uh, the, the failing New, New York Times. But not to say they've had great humorists and great writers uh, like Run, Runyon. But for my money, their solemnity actually diminishes the really great stuff, which was uh, the Pentagon Papers, Daniel Ellsberg, to an extent, Watergate. And what is quite clear what's going on with Trump, and history doesn't even rhyme, I suspect, in this case, is they're looking at over Trump. There may be another Watergate around the the corner, but it just doesn't work out like that. I mean, Trump, uh, Florence, has been 
fabulous news for the New York Times. They've, they've put on countless subscriptions since he came to office. They, they do get a definite spike in interest every time he calls them the failing New York Times. Um, but they've clearly, especially before, even before Trump got elected, they were clearly trying to position themselves not merely as America's journal of record, but the global newspaper of record. They're trying to save themselves. Uh, do, do, you think that, do you think that's a title they deserve? Mm, oh, no, I think they are Americans. I mean, I agree with, <laughs> with what Robert said. Like, they have a special point of view. I mean, they definitely lack of humor, uh, lack of humor and I think it's, it's really a sin for British journalists or British people in general. And... Uh, and well, I mean, they, they, they've been doing their, their best, but they kind of dominate the world. Like uh, They've got some very good uh, Brett journalists, the, the, particularly Carlotta Gaul, who really sprung the myth that, uh, about um, the, the killing of uh, Osama bin Laden and that really the Pakistanis knew about this. She, she, she really nailed that one. But we've been reading an article, haven't we, about this in The New, in the New Yorker. The New Yorker, I think, does a better job particularly in long-form journalism, of real reporting than either the Times or the Post at the moment. But the Times and the Post, I do agree, are going through a, um, a, a golden era at the moment. But I do wish there were more laughs. Bring back Art Bookfold. Well, well but basically what we need then is, a, yeah, is a, exactly. an, an, an American newspaper's resources with, with, with British journalists on it. And, and perhaps the, the occasional... And French, and French. And, 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 and oh, perhaps French, the, the occasional Australian one. Uh, but yes, a, a reiteration of when that airs in the UK. That is Sunday the 24th of June on BBC Two. And that does bring us to the end of today's show. Florence Biederman and Robert Fox, thank you both very much for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Ben Ryland, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Amber Roberts. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Music next at 1900. It's Monocle on Design. There's more on the day's main stories on the Daily at 2200. Midori House returns tomorrow at 1800 London time. I'll be your host for that as well. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. <laughs>